This is the Issues on Appeal podcast. I am your host, Dwayne Diker. This is episode one, Staying Current. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining me. This is the first episode of a new podcast that focuses on appellate issues and appellate practice in Florida in both the state and federal courts. I talked about the show in some detail in episode zero, and I don't want to bore you with all of that again. If you wound up here first, you may want to go back and have a listen to my discussion of what this show is all about. Each week, we'll be talking about Florida appellate practice through discussions with members of Florida's appellate community. My first guest is a true star of our appellate community, Matt Canigliaro. Matt is a shareholder in the Tampa office of Carlton Fields and a board-certified appellate lawyer. Matt's a past chair of the Florida Bar's appellate practice section, and chances are good you've heard him as a speaker at a CLE. Matt seems to be just about everywhere. He is well known for his appellate update lectures, and he'll be talking to us about some of the ways that he stays current with appellate news and events. My interview with Matt is coming up next. Matt Canigliaro, thank you for joining me on the Issues on Appeal podcast. Thank you for asking me. So we met many years ago uh, through the Florida Bar's appellate practice section, uh, where you have done just about every job imaginable, I think. Is that right? I haven't imagined them all, but I've done a few of them. Uh, including you are, uh, have held all the officer positions and you were the past chair. Do you remember when that was? Mm, 2012 or so. You know, I will mention, I think I will end up holding the record for most years as an officer of the appellate practice section. Right, because you served multiple years in, in one office. Is that where you treasurer? Yeah, it was, it was, there were two things that happened. One we went from having separate offices for secretary and treasurer to combining them to one, and I was the last treasurer. So I went from being sec- from treasurer to being secretary treasurer. And then a year or two later was when Raul Cantero left the Supreme Court and rejoined us as practitioners in the bar, and we invited him back into the leadership of the section because he, I think he was chair-elect maybe when he went on the Supreme Court. So right. mm-hmm. he, we brought him right back into the leadership in front of me. So so I stayed, I guess I was vice chair maybe for, for two years or whatever position I was then for two years and Raul got in place there. So I ended up being an officer I think for six years. Nick Shanine, who will be uh, a guest on an upcoming episode, he, he served an extra term uh, because of an issue like that. But, but you served two extra. So you're, you will probably hold the record for a while until something strange happens to somebody else. So now you are a board-certified appellate specialist, and you're a shareholder at Carlton Fields. What are your primary areas of practice? I like to say I do appeals, and I'll do appeals of really any type, any place, just about anywhere, preferably Florida since that's my expertise. But I like being a little bit of a up a jack of all trades. I like following law really broadly, so I like practicing it really broadly too. So my work covers everything from contract cases to big personal injury tort cases to dissolution cases, child custody cases, but always, almost always appeals or uh, cases where I get involved at the trial level with an aim towards helping steer it towards an appeal. Do you ever find yourself involved in criminal appeals at all? 
No, unless it's pro bono. I've done at least six or eight pro bono criminal cases, and they've been great fun. In fact, two of my earliest arguments at the Florida Supreme Court were pro bono cases I took there. And I took them for the purpose of getting oral argument experience. And, and, and getting to the Supreme Court maybe? Well, at the time I took them, the cases were in the Supreme Court. So it was a, just a matter a of sure whether, whether they would grant argument. Well, they don't always grant argument. I, I wish that the, the judges and justices would, would appreciate how often appellate lawyers get involved with appeals for the purpose of getting that oral argument. Because from the court's point of view, it isn't usually too much trouble to hold an argument. And yet the reward for the practitioner who just put all that time into that case is, is tremendous. So, yeah, I took a few cases at the state Supreme Court for the purpose of really having the oral arguments. So is there something in particular that you really love about being an appellate lawyer? There are a lot of things that are great about being an appellate lawyer. The basics of practice are about reading and writing, both of which I love. And I could sit and read case law all day and just enjoy it. If somebody could pay me to read case law all day, that would be the perfect job. Uh, writing is then another piece of it, and, and it's great fun. It's a great challenge. And the longer I do it, the more I appreciate how many different ways there are to do it, which just becomes more fun because you, you, you learn that over time that there are lots of wrong ways to do things. And there are sort of a handful of right ways. And they aren't necessarily the same. One of the things I tell young associates when they join us is to look for mentors of a sort. Look for people that you can watch and and learn how they do what they do well. And if there are a hundred different ways to do things, 80 of them are probably horrible. Right, but, but maybe 20 are good. And of the 20 that are good, maybe five or six or eight of them are great. And, and within that group of five or six or eight that are great, they may be completely different. So the people who are really good at, at whatever they're doing, in this case appellate practice, they, they may not agree. They may not even get along and see things anywhere as close to the same but they've each found really, really effective ways of doing what they do. And so watch those folks and it, you know, become like one of them as opposed to someone in that sort of bottom group or, or whatever. And, and that's where I've had a lot of fun. I've had great mentors and great opportunities to work with excellent lawyers and uh, learn from just really spectacular people who are great at what they do. And that's made – the whole profession so much more fun for me is that I've had these great experiences with these great people and so I got to watch them and say all right this person does it that way and this person does it that way and let me try this and see how it works and let me try that and see how it works that's why I say it's as I get further along in the profession it becomes more fun to appreciate different ways of doing things because you get kind of stuck sometimes right you you approach the cases a certain way you approach arguing a certain way and then Maybe one day you think, well, this case, let me try a different approach. You know, just sort of shake up the way you write or the way you speak, the way you present, and see how it goes. 
once you feel comfortable working in the field, it, it makes it easier to take that step back and, and reevaluate approaches and maybe you want to do things a little bit differently. That's, that's very interesting. It's, it's definitely something that comes with time. I agree. There's really no substitute for just the amount of time you've been doing something. Now, one of the things that you are known for in this area is being a frequent lecturer on all sorts of topics. But one of the topics that seems to you seem to cover a lot is like the appellate update or the year in review type topic. Uh, so it, it appears to, to us that you are always on top of what is going on in the courts, whether it's uh, opinions that have come out or rule changes or judicial appointments. And it raises the question, how, how do you keep up? How, how do you stay so informed? What's your secret? I do not have a secret. Um, in fact, there, there, I'm not sure there could be a secret. I just pay attention because I enjoy it. And I guess that's where it starts. For me, the law and the court system are fantastic, fun things. There's nothing static about them. They're always changing, always moving in some direction or another, for better or for worse. And there's always something to see. So I do try to keep track of cases. I read opinions, I can't say daily, but, but as they come out, I try to read them. Each week I try to read at least what, what seem like the most significant opinions. And I do that just by flipping through them. I don't, there's no like, place I go to find the coolest, newest opinions and whatnot. I just go look at them. And to the extent things are happening with committees or, or rules or other different developments in the, in the courts, I just try to watch and keep my eyes open and, and talk with folks and, and listen. And you'd be amazed how much you learn just by paying attention. So you, you literally go straight to the source and go to the court, court web pages on opinion days and, and see what's there. Yes. And, and I'm, I'm lucky because I have a great set of, of colleagues both within my firm and other places where when fun things happen, we enjoy talking about it. So you know, if someone puts out an opinion that does something that's really extraordinary in, in some way or another – yeah, there's a whole group of folks I'll, I'll go to to talk about it, and we'll go back and forth on whether this is a good idea or a bad idea. Does it really work? Is it going to last? You know, what, what's the life of this concept or holding or whatever's happened? And that makes it a lot of fun too, and that's you know, part of the, the beauty of the appellate bar is that there's lots of folks out there who kind of share this sort of similar interest in the law and in cases and, and developments. And so – at the end of the day, I'm not sure I'm much different than a bunch of people, but it's really fun to be able to stay on top of things and, and to look for the interesting angles in them. Like you can read an opinion and just think, oh, there's an opinion. It said you know, party one, party two, court ruled this and move on to the next opinion. Or you can try to see through it and like, what was really happening here and what did the court do. And there's all kinds of times when you look at a case and you try to read through what's going on and you try to come up with some kind of insight into maybe how the law is developing in this direction or that direction or what was maybe really going on that isn't spoken in the words on the page, but it's really clear if you step back and look at it. And and that makes it fun too. And also if you're looking at these courts and these opinions over time, you can see trends, right, amongst the courts, which ways they're going and maybe identify 
issues that are hot or, or predict the way courts may go in the future just by keeping a close eye on how they decide things, even the little things? Yeah, it, it's it's great to look for trends and great to try to predict. It's a lot of fun to predict problems that are coming and maybe you know different ways that folks are going to try to approach them when they hit. Now, your firm, uh, Carlton Fields, has a blog, uh, Florida Appeals Court Decisions, that lists opinions of all the Florida courts as they come out. Is that something that you're involved in, or is that, a, is that something you delegate? The people who listen to this will appreciate that you and I have not rehearsed any of this, because <laughs> you, I'm, I'm pretty sure you don't know what I'm about to say. But here's the story behind that. Many years ago, I started my own appellate blog. This is back in like 2003. So I remember the, abstract appeal. Abstract appeal, yeah. Half the people practicing law now probably weren't practicing law <laughs> then. <laughs> but there I was, a, a somewhat young shareholder at Carlton Fields, looking to do more. And I came up with the idea for it, and I created it, and I had just started typing away at the keyboard. And, and that's really what I did. I would just post things that caught my interest in Florida law or otherwise in the law, but mostly in Florida. When I remember reading that and, and being a fan of it because you did a lot of what you just described, which was sometimes comment on what else might be going on in the cases or some of the deeper themes that you're seeing. And it was, uh, you weren't summarizing cases, you were providing insight, which was actually, you know, always very interesting. Well, I'm not sure it was insightful as much as it was just kind of fun. And, and that's a, to me, it's an entertaining thing to do. And so I was working at that for probably a couple years. And the folks at Carlton Fields would say, what are you doing over there? That seems like you're putting a lot of time into that little blog thing of yours. And I'd say, well, I, you know, I try to do it early in the mornings or late at night, not have it interfere with you know, the work of, of the firm and, and my practice. And, and then they'd nudge me a little more and say, why, why, why don't you maybe do something? Why, why isn't that a firm thing and mm-hmm. whatnot? And, and I would say, you know how much work is involved? You know, I, 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 I'm not sure I can do that for, you know, under the, the flag of a firm. It's a real difference between something that's a hobby and something that's now an expectation of the law firm, right? Well, that's true. I could always walk away from it and take a pause or just stop altogether and – I didn't have to answer to anybody. And when I spoke, I could speak as me, not as an attorney with this firm or you know, a spokesperson for this firm. And, of course, the firm has lots of clients and people who might care about different issues. And You can certainly get in trouble just speaking on your own, but you're probably more likely to get in trouble if you're speaking constantly for other people. So I was very nervous about something like that being done for the firm. I had seen blogs and similar websites that firms had done. And and a lot of them were very, they they were so close to the vest or so almost sterile that that, that there wasn't much interest when you read through what was there. And and so I I didn't want to turn abstract appeal into a firm thing. I thought that's just not going to work. But after they kept nudging me and nudging me, I said, all right, let me, I'm going to come up with something that we can do that will at least let us say we're doing something with the internet and, and this sort of outreach you can do that way. 
and I came up with this idea of having what I think to this day still doesn't exist, which is a weekly listing of all of the decisions that come out from the Florida courts and just put two or three or so words together to describe the subject of the case. Not a holding, not whether it's a big deal or small deal, not a sentence-long description or post-conviction relief or, or something. Whatever the topic words. is. Yeah. And, and part of the idea was there's a value in that if your practice involves different subject areas because you could try to look and just see. I mean if you do family law, then cases on dissolution, custody, uh, child support, that sort of stuff would be of interest to you. Cases on you know, foreclosing, not at all. And so I, it started as a web page that we would put out once a week. And I created this internal system within the firm to try to subdivide the work. So there was a group of us that got together and then we had kind of internal things that deadlines. All right, we're going to try to have this out by Friday afternoon to do that. You know, you do this court, you do that court. And it, it evolved a bit over the years in different ways. But I would say it's been over 10 years since that project started. It still goes on. Its current form, which you can't tell if you look at the website, or there's an email that goes around too. You can actually, I think, go on the website and, and join the email list for that. We have I think it's hundreds of, of people who get the weekly email of that. But the email is just a small version of what's on the web page. It's a list of all the decisions that came out of the Florida appellate courts and the 11th Circuit that week with a couple words about each case to say what's the subject of the case. And the idea is if something intrigues you, you click on it and go through and you can then read the opinion. And it's meant to be a resource. That has continued all these years. I currently do four of the seven courts each week. I won't say which ones. So if you look at it and think that description's wrong, just assume it's, it's somebody else doing it. So but, I'm assuming it's the five DCAs, the Florida Supreme Court, and the 11th Circuit. Yes. I will put a link in the show notes to the blog so that the listeners can, can take a look at it. I, I find it extraordinarily helpful because, like you said, it's there's there's not – there's just enough content that I can take a glance at all the cases that came out this week and all the Florida courts, and I can eliminate you know, half of them that are post-conviction relief dissolution proceedings that are not particularly of interest to me, and the other ones I can click on and take a look at. So I, I find it very useful. I'm glad that uh, glad well, it's something I'm, that you all I'm glad get. to hear that somebody looks at it because I never pay any attention to – the marketing side of that. You know, does anyone actually read it? Does anyone actually look? Because to me, it's useful just to put that together each week. And and I feel like I've accomplished something if by Friday at 5 o'clock that page is on the, the internet and the email has gone out. That, that's a win for me But by Friday at 5. And I'll tell you, I have been, in the last 10 plus years that we've been doing this, I have been literally all over the world on Friday afternoon stopping what I'm doing wherever it is. I've been you know, all over the country, in Alaska, Europe, other places. And Friday afternoon, I'm sitting there typing up the case names and the little descriptions for each case and then proofing the thing before it finally goes out. And it's, it's sort of in my DNA now that on Friday afternoon, that's what I do. Every single week, all year, 
for years and years and years. Yeah, that's definitely dedication. But it's fun. Have you ever considered getting abstract appeal going again, or do you think that's just something that's passed? Well, I, you know, I stopped it. It's now been many years since I stopped. And it was a casualty of the practice. I mean, I, people would say, how do you do that? Or how much time do you put into that? And I would tell them really honestly, oh, I get up about four. And I would spend till seven or eight each morning working on it most every day of the week. Sometimes weekends included, um, not necessarily four to seven or eight, but but that I took a three four hour block pretty much out of just about every day, and then weekends I'd find time when I could. So the hours added up. I mean, you start thinking about putting say twenty five hours a week or more into a project. That's a part time job. That's a hundred hours a month. Do it for a year. It's it's a massive amount of time. Uh, but I did it because it was just fun. And where it became a problem was as my sort of professional path continued and I got more and more work and the work became more and more involved and here's the real clincher as I became more and more responsible for the work there's really a difference between being sort of the young person on the team whose whose job is sort of discreet and confined right draft this brief or draft this part of a brief draft this argument or do this and you know get it to me and then I'll work on it that's you know that sort of lower level ground level work is easier to manage. What's harder to manage is to be the person at the top of that chain. And as I more and more became the person at the top of the chain in the cases I had, it was harder and harder to have time to do much else. And and so I ended up stopping abstract appeal now many years ago. But that was the reason. It wasn't because I didn't want to do it. It was just because I couldn't. Uh, you know, people were counting on me for cases and to you know handle briefs and appeals and whatnot. And, and I couldn't be not giving them the quality work they were expecting from me and yet still be very publicly chatting away on the <laughs> Internet. I was always worried, in all seriousness, I was always worried that I would send in a motion for extension of time in a case and that some court would enter an order that either denied the request with some reference to we see you've been blogging uh, or granted the request, but still made some snarky reference to, you know, we're going to grant your request, but we see what you've been doing online. You're obviously not spending all of your time on this brief. <laughs> Which would be give you great material for the blog, right? <laughs> uh, you know, I, the blog produced some weird exchanges. I, I had more than once, I had somebody send me something that was filed in court in like, you know, DCA or somewhere. Once it might have been in trial court, but uh, definitely in the appellate courts, where they quoted something from the blog and used it as like authority, which made me laugh because I thought, this is just some guy sitting at a keyboard typing stuff up and somebody is now trying to use it like it was an article or a treatise or something. The law according to Matt. Yeah. Well, <laughs> believe me, if you know Matt, then you're not going to be terribly impressed. <laughs> well, so is there... Any other creative projects? Are you are you scratching any creative itches? Oh, I, I always have many. And, you know, if I had a 48-hour day, my productivity would just be really good because there's so many things I'd love to do. I have articles. I'm literally years behind on articles, written articles. I have probably four or five stacked up that need to get done, and they just haven't been finished. 
And in terms of projects sort of a la abstract appeal, yeah, there's a couple. I've had the itch to return to that itself. I have dabbled with the the podcasting idea. Uh, there's a couple of us at the firm who have – we actually started it uh, going back a year or two ago where we did some recording and had some ideas and we really just couldn't get it where we wanted it to be and so it, it sat and it became another sort of casualty of, of getting busy. And if things go well in, in the sense that I have more time, then those things will surface. So so who knows? Maybe as you uh, are able to get your, your podcast rolling, you'll see something out there from me too in the near future. Definitely. I, I think you know podcasting continues to be uh, a hot media. Um, I don't know if anybody listens to the radio anymore. People listen to podcasts when they're driving and when they're working out and they're doing things, and it's 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 a good medium because it's the the barrier to entry is fairly low. People can get in, and if you have something important to say, you can say it. So I I think there's there's a lot of areas that could still be explored for some podcasts, and and uh, especially an area like this, you know, it's like with this podcast, I don't expect to have a big audience. Uh, there's only a limited number of appellate geeks in the world, but those geeks are pretty geeky, and they're very interested in these kinds of things. And so, you know, people like you will will, will uh, gather any information they can get. Right? Uh, it's they're hungry for more. So uh, maybe we'll get there. And I think certainly you have plenty to say. So I would love to see you uh, continue down that road. Well, maybe in time. But- I think there's a lot to be said. I'm not so sure it's it's me. There's just a lot out there. And frankly, there's a lot of stuff out there that's not very good. Um, just in terms of, you know, just sort of you know, news or, or resources. And, and I look at things, and, and maybe my world is somewhat narrow, right? We're in sort of this niche universe of, of people who really enjoy learning about developments in the law. Uh, but But for people who are in that little universe... You look at some of the resources that are out there from some commercial entities, and they're not terribly helpful, and, and they don't really speak much. And maybe that's the nature of business and commercial work. Commercial media, yeah. One thing, if if you've if you've heard me speak at at bar seminars over the years, you might have noticed a little bit of a change because many years ago when I would speak, I, I was very sort of straight and narrow with how I would comment on things and probably did what what the bar or, you know, a firm or someone like that would, would want to see. But in more recent years, I I stray quite a bit. Part of that may just come from the the comfort of experience and thinking, well, at some point they're probably not going to get rid of me over one comment, right? <laughs> right. And, and part of it comes from a genuine desire to, to try to find something useful and, and helpful to, to pass on to folks or to start a conversation about a topic that's, that's got a, a potential life to it. We all, I think, can have a reluctance sometimes to take positions on things just because – Maybe it's something that firm management wouldn't like. Maybe it's something that potential clients wouldn't like. But, you know, clearly that does that, – that shuts down conversation a little bit. Well, you know, I agree with that. I'd go even a step further that one thing that the appellate bar ends up being really good at 
is having spirited disagreements. Like part of our skill set as appellate practitioners is to advance a cause in a way that is respectful of everyone involved and acknowledges that the other side has a different viewpoint. Now, maybe we disagree with that viewpoint, but we respect it enough to engage it in a sophisticated manner. And that's part of what's missing, right? If you just read the news, if you just watch TV at night or whatever, a lot of what's missing from the discourse is the respect, the, the, the acknowledgement by whoever's speaking that the other side's view has some validity to it and, and may even be right, right? <laughs> but, but at least has some validity to it. And, and that's what appellate folks are really skilled at in the end, right, is the ability to have those conversations. And, and to me, that, that's just a whole lot of fun. And, and to some extent, it's a skill set that I wish people outside of our profession had, right? You should make these reporters and pundits and whatnot. They should become appellate people for a little while just to learn the art of, of having that sort of sophisticated conversation where you still disagree and maybe passionately disagree, but you do it in a respectful manner. Yeah, sometimes that is lacking in other areas of the bar. I, I, I find sometimes in the trial courts it's, it's harder. You don't see that respect between advocates as much, and maybe it's just the nature of trial court disputes that people are you know, sort of at each other's throats for much longer periods of time over many different things. Uh, it's something that, that I really like about the appellate bar is we, we, as appellate lawyers, we do tend to get along much better. We can go to oral argument and, and disagree vehemently and, uh, and still be friends and professional, and uh, I enjoy that a lot. But it, it, I, I take your point that it's, uh, it would be nice if it was much broader than that. Yeah, well, that's really what I mean. And, you know, trial courts are different, especially if you're talking about actually being in front of a jury. It's a different audience. And for better or for worse, the legal profession has gotten very good at learning how to communicate to different audiences. And juries are one of them. Trial judges are really different. They're a different audience, too. And so you have these specialties. Trial lawyers are excellent at at communicating to jurors or to trial judges, less so to appellate judges. That's kind of where we come in. But, but these are all sort of specialties. And we're benefited as appellate lawyers by having this sort of fixed system that we operate in, right? There's only so much room for emotion. There's only so much room for uh, sort of going outside the record, right? Bringing in things that it's sort of new ways of looking at old problems because you're, you're really confined in what you can argue, what you can say. And so it, those constraints don't necessarily apply if you're arguing to a trial judge on an issue or if you're arguing to a jury on an issue. You've got a whole different sort of box of tools to draw on. Uh, but the skill sets are – it's sort of fascinating to sort of look at them and, and appreciate the differences. And in the end, I just come back to we're really lucky to be in the sort of the box we're in because it's it's a it's a high level bunch of fun is what it is for sure so let me ask you uh, 
on a more personal level, I know that you are engaged in a process where you are running a marathon or attempting to run a marathon in, in every state. Uh, can I get an update on where you are on that? I thought you were pretty far along. Uh, well, uh, you're right. Um, I, you know, I started running long distance running. Now going back about 14, 13, 14 years or so. And what I learned was I could get out a lot of steam and energy if I just went for a run. And, and it was really fun. And it, and it turned into this thing where I started doing marathons. And little by little, I did one here, I did one there. And now I am through 49 of the 50 states. I have one state to go. It's coming up soon. And when I finish that marathon, which will be my next marathon, I will have run a marathon in all 50 states. And some I've done more than once. So I think I've, I'm up to 60 maybe 50, 59 or so. 50, Which is the last remaining state? North Carolina. Really? And that's where I went to undergrad. Huh. Although I'm not doing I went to undergrad at Chapel Hill, but I'm doing my 50th in Asheville. And we'll see how it goes. I, I think I'm just going to jog it and, <laughs> and enjoy it and have fun. Because some, some of them you race. Some of them you take it easy on. I've, after doing as many marathons as I've done, I guess it's at 58, 58 or 59 now. I forget the number, but it's up there. But I've had all these different experiences, right? I've had some where you just felt great. It was a great day. The weather was perfect. I've had days that were too hot, too cold, you know, upset stomach, uh, injured hamstring or something else. And you kind of run through all the different permutations. And it's kind of fun to uh, go to different places. Uh, It was a great trek to go around the country and run marathons in all the different states. I mean, just I I would never – why would I have been to – I don't know pick stuff like far away uh idaho idaho sure <laughs> montana the dakotas minnesota michigan all that the sort of northern middle section of the country you know the heartland was just fun i really enjoyed going to you know iowa and missouri uh, that whole band down through arkansas those are some of the best marathons uh, were these great towns along rivers in the middle of the country uh, that put on great events and they're beautiful beautiful areas and uh, you know my wife and i went out to hawaii we went to alaska uh, to run so it was fun we turned them into vacations too while we were there so what'll happen after you hit 50 clearly you're not giving up is there is there a is there another goal you're going to go back and hit some of the ones you like the most or what's do you have a plan yet i'm determined not to set it yet as a goal i'll just sort of see what happens but you know people say oh you should do the seven continents or, or i guess you can do all the canadian provinces Uh, (laughs) people there's no end to how many ways you can come up with goals for these sorts of things is there a marathon in antarctica i'm not sure oh there is is there yes and in fact it's it's done really for purposes of people who want to hit yeah (laughs) and and, in in double fact there is a, a group that puts together somewhat regularly the sort of seven marathons in seven days thing where they will it's an awful lot of money but if you're willing to give up that time and that money uh, you can trek with them across all seven continents within seven days and run a marathon in each continent. Wow. Which is, I mean, I'm not that crazy. <laughs> so I have a, uh, a few questions. It's sort of a lightning round here, and I haven't given you a heads up on this. 
Uh, these or, are, or even that it was going to happen. That's right. Mm-hmm. These okay. are vaguely law-related and uh, <laughs> to draw some uh, information out of you and maybe controversial but not in a serious way at all. <laughs> okay. I promise to answer in a non-controversial, non-serious way. There you go. Uh, Oxford comma, yes or no? Every single time. Agreed. I'm, no, nobody <laughs> said no yet, so let's see. Uh, one or two spaces after a period. Where are we writing? Appell brief. Two. I agree with that, too. Case names, underline or italics? Italics, always. Westlaw or Lexis? Eh, that's not really fair. I work for a firm that has selected Westlaw, so I use Westlaw. iPhone or Android? Neither. Really? Oh, don't tell me you're a BlackBerry guy. I am still using a BlackBerry and will continue as long as I can, although that, even that's a little misleading because the current Blackberries are all Android-based, but not the one I'm still using. I'm still using a Classic, which was BlackBerry's operating system. Is that right? Wow. With a keyboard and everything, a physical keyboard? Yes. Wow. <laughs> when, you, when you read for pleasure, if you do, I'm not sure if you have time with all the stuff that you read, but uh, do you prefer to read... On a paperback or on a Kindle? Prefer to read paperback or hardcover, but but yeah, physical books I still prefer. The any kind of tablet reading, I try to avoid it for pleasure reading because it just feels closer to work. And there's just something fun about having a, a physical book you can lug around and grab and put down. Feel the pages between yeah. your fingers, yeah. And you can see where you are, right? I still I love bookmarks. When I travel, I like to. That's like the simple souvenir I get anywhere I go is a bookmark. You can buy them anywhere. Someone has bookmarks to, you know, commemorate their place or thing. So I have bookmarks lying everywhere, and I use them in books that I read. And I just like seeing a bookmark in a book that kind of shows me I'm starting the book, I'm in the middle of the book, I'm at the end of the book, and you know, all the electronic forms. There's there's no similar comparison. See, I think I might be unusual in that respect. I, I love and appreciate books, and I own a lot of physical books. And if I really like a book, I'll buy a physical book. But I still prefer to read it on the Kindle. It's something, or usually a Kindle app on my iPad. It's just something about it's easy, and it's lightweight, and it always remembers where you are, and it syncs between your devices. I just love the uh, the convenience. But you don't, you don't have, I don't have, I don't know, you, maybe you do. I don't have the sense of almost ownership when I read something on a tablet that I get out of having the book. Like you go get the book, you buy the book or someone gives you the book or you, you know, a library or whatever. But there's a book there. It's something you, you, you have and you see and you, you there it is and, and you feel like I've consumed that. Right. I've covered that. Whereas reading something, whether it's online, reading online and reading on a tablet to me are the same thing. It's just it's, – it's something that someone else has out there in the universe and you kind of get a glimpse at it and then it goes away. Yeah. It's like you're renting instead of buying. Something like that. <laughs> Matt, how can people get a hold of you? Oh, I'm really easy. Uh, email, phone. I'm sure that growing up I thought – having the last name Canigliero was just a very strange thing to have because no one knew how to say it and it's sort of visually intimidating you look at it, you know, what is that word and and then being named Matt or Matthew was growing up not common at all and as we've entered this sort of age of 
the internet and, and social media and, and whatnot, uh, having a name that's not terribly common is great. Because if you pop my name into Google or pick your search, I come up in like a million different ways, whether it's, you know, my bio on my firm's website or, or whichever it is. But they're almost all me. There are a couple other Matt Canigliaros out there, but not many. And so I, it's just easy to find me. I, I answer my phone at work. I respond to emails pretty quickly unless I'm consumed in something. Well, I will be sure to include a link to your firm bio in the show notes. Uh, I think it's worth saying, for so that if anyone is out there looking for you on social media, that you don't have a social media presence, right? <laughs> it's true. No, I, no you know, sense trying to follow you on Twitter. That, yeah, it won't work. <laughs> there, it it kind of came from having the blog as heavy as I did. You know, I started the blog in 2003, which was pre-Facebook, pre-Twitter, by well, Twitter by years, Facebook by a, a few uh, you know, I guess they started it in 2004, but it didn't go commercial in terms of the public being able to access it um, at large as opposed to college students uh, for a few years. And, and so by the time those things got to where they were getting some, some critical mass or momentum going, I had been going with the blog for years and, and thought, I'm just not going to do that too. <laughs> and then I got really worried because it became kind of painfully obvious that people who were diving full on into those things were bringing together all these different parts of their lives. And you know, if you had your sort of your work colleagues, your your friends, today's friends, yesterday's friends, right? Uh, High you school know, friends, exactly. <laughs> family and and maybe a church and other places where people know you. Or if you're involved in different civic organizations, people know you there and somewhere else. And and, and these can be really different groups of people. And, and yet you, people bring them all together in their sort of social media uh, profiles. And I thought, I'm not going to do that. That's a lot of different people who don't need to meet each other. <laughs> Worlds colliding. Yeah. And so I, I, for many years, I stayed away from it just thinking, I'm just not going to go. They're not going to go there. And, and now I've just been away from it really the whole time. I mean, don't get me wrong. I still – I. There are people on Twitter I follow, uh, but I don't do it through Twitter. I just, you know, through my own account on Twitter, I just do it by going to the website and, and looking up who I want to look up. Everybody's, you know, saved and bookmarked or whatever. Yeah, there actually is a fairly strong appellate community on Twitter, you know, that they call appellate Twitter uh, with a lot of uh, practitioners and even some judges. And so it is it's, – it's kind of interesting to me. I, I use Twitter mostly for – work-related things. I have other platforms I use for keeping up with family and that kind of thing. I use Twitter mostly for work-related. And, and for instance, all the courts now, when the second DCA publishes opinions, uh, the court tweets out opinions are available with a link, and you can link over to them. And, you know, that kind of stuff is, is kind of nice. The courts are, are actually embracing it, too. I think they should make the judges, or at least offer the opportunity for the judges to go ahead and say personalized things on those things. Because it would be, I'll give you an example. We're, we're both in Tampa right now, where the second DCA sits. And we know that the second DCA releases opinions on Wednesdays and Fridays. And, and typically, you know, it's between 10 and 11. So if you go to the website, about 11 o'clock on Wednesday and Friday, you'll see the latest second DCA opinions. You're probably not going to see them at 9 a.m. 
they'll probably be there before one or two. And if it's you know Monday, Tuesday, or Thursday, nothing new. So we kind of know when it's going to happen. But what would be fun would be if somebody was going to tweet – it should be like the dissenting judge <laughs> says, this, you know, this horrible opinion by the majority is now out. If you agree with, Read my dissent if, here. If you, yeah, if you agree with me, let me know. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, appellate dissent by social media. You know, maybe not, too, maybe not too far afield in today's world. Community out there at large might then get to respond and you can picture, you know, move for rehearing on this. I can't believe they did that. And, it could be all kinds of fun. Matt, uh, I have to thank you. I really appreciate you being on this very first episode of the Issues on Appeal podcast. Uh, it's been great talking to you. I hope that I can count on you to come back some other time down the road when the time is right. Well, I will be happy to join you anytime you would like. Best wishes to you with, with this project going forward. I think it will be fun to listen to, and I hope you have fun doing it. Thanks, Matt. Wow, that was great. My sincerest thanks to Matt Canigliaro for his appearance on this first episode of the Issues on Appeal podcast. There are a bunch more great interviews to come, so please subscribe and listen. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice. Nothing I say or my guests say should ever be interpreted as legal advice for a particular situation. Now, that being said, if you're a lawyer who needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help you out. You can contact me at Issues on Appeal on Twitter or at my professional email, ddaiker at shoemaker.com. And my contact information is always in the show notes, which are available in your podcast player. I'd love to hear your comments and suggestions on the show. If there's anyone you want to hear from or you want to be a guest on the show, just send me an email or a Twitter DM. Let me know you're out there and that you're listening. If you like the show, please consider rating it on iTunes. Four or five stars would be great. I've got another great guest and another great interview coming up in the next episode. I hope to talk to you then. And as always, thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal. <laughs>